0: you've always taken such a
1: charge. You are listening
0: to the Border Chronicle.
1: What is happening with climate change and displacement, and what does that have to do with the U.S.-Mexico borderlands? And how should we approach this? And really, why on earth are not more people talking about it? For this reason, please join me for a rich discussion with the executive director and founder of the organization Climate Refugees, Amali Tower. Climate Refugees is an advocacy and research organization that monitors and seeks to protect people displaced by climate change. In other words, Amali is one of the top sources of information and thought on this issue in the country if not the world and i wanted to start out our conversation today with you amali talking about why do you think people that are interested in say the us mexico border should be interested in climate displacement
0: i think there's a false narrative of how people expect or think that climate change is interacting with displacement or migration i tend to think that people think it's either this apocalyptic scenario Right, like that one day the seas are going to be above our heads and it's going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, so we can't live here anymore. Or they think a disaster comes along and that's my first experience with climate change. And so maybe at that point I go, oh, a hurricane has tipped my house over. I have nowhere left to live. And and that was my experience. And thus I've been displaced and or I have to move. Or they think the situation will become so like extreme. At some future event down the road not you know which is like 50 or 60 years from now which of course in like human nature in your mind's eye that feels like oh 150 years from now who cares or even if I do care mm, not something I can do about or it's baked in that there's this then psychological thing that happens of like it's either a beyond my control or B that it's a, the interaction between climate and movement of people Is just that simple as if it's this like two variable connection you know and what actually happens is is what's happening now is this like everything in between how climate is actually interacting with mobility is what is it doing to widen poverty right to or or exacerbate poverty what is it doing to widen inequality what is it doing to affect health What is it doing to impact food security? What is it doing to impact the right to education? And instead, our world thinks of these things as siloed issues. Oh, well, education, that has nothing to do with climate. Climate's an environmental issue, right? And so it's this like very, I mean, is that psychological? I don't even know, Todd, right? Like, we should be bringing psychologists into this conversation is what I find myself saying often because there's a need and a, to just understand that the way we're framing this, the way we're understanding this, the way the entire international affairs system is set up to be so siloed is to not understand the linkages and issues that our system has gone from Persecution, refugee protection, was about individual rights, right? My persecution was, I was persecuted for my, like, individual identity as, like, an individual, as, as like, on an individual basis. So maybe I was persecuted on the basis of my race, on the basis of my individual polit- political opinion. These are two of the five grounds. Now, how you look at refugee movements is... Maybe I'm being persecuted because of entire systems that I have no choice, but to be a part of that do not represent me. And climate change is really, that's exactly how this situation sort of works. If I live in the Central America dry corridor, maybe I have to coexist as an indigenous person, as an Afro-Caribbean who is entrenched in systems that have marginalized me historically, politically, system systematically and systemically now in business practices as well with like when you consider the multinational corporations and the development schemes that are ongoing simultaneously with my right to exist and farm and feed my family while they're also while I have no land rights and my land is being taken away from me and then the climate which I've had zero part in even as a citizen of my country let's say Honduras where I've had zero role almost, less than 1%, in contributing to pollution and global warming and and everything, you know, and the greenhouse gases that have contributed to climate change. I'm being disproportionately affected by that, so much so that food insecurity, even before we started seeing the arrivals at the U.S. southern border, was like 2 million people were food insecure. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens over years. By this point, 6 to 8 years of consecutive drought, of scorched earth, of It's temperature so extreme that nothing can grow. Then two hurricanes that come back to back and hit the same region. You know, how do you explain those things? They don't happen in a vacuum. They weren't just climate events. They happened and they exacerbated the existing poverty that is part of our global economic system. They widened inequality. They grossly, you know, exacerbated the fact that I'm marginalized as an indigenous person, right? that i'm persecuted uh, on the basis of my ethnicity so this is this is how climate change is really in its real form that's how that's interacting and that's how that's forcing me to have to go and look for better outcomes in a world that gives me no right to move because of visa regimes and border regimes and doesn't give me the same equal access to the u.s southern border as let's say a ukrainian at this point has
1: yeah that's that's really um Really perceptive and in-depth analysis, I think, to to what's going on with climate. It's it's always very interesting to me that you know, like, say, you look at st- uh, events happening in Central America, and then like if you read about it in the newspaper or in the media, um, you might see, oh, because of this reason, or you know, like, like typically you'll hear, bi- you know, violence in Central America. Um, without it being unpacked, right? It's just kind of, oh, there's violence. Like, what What does that even mean? You know, how does that impact? How does that, what are the, what's the historical significance of that? What are the historical roots of that? What, and what I'm always interested in is, what is U, how is U.S. involvement in that? Like you were mentioning, when you look at greenhouse gas emissions, of course, historically, the United States is, Tremendously involved, so I I really I really appreciate your um analysis there, and I'm wondering, you know, when there's um say like you just mentioned, like say you're a farmer in the dry corridor in Central America, in Honduras, we say, or Guatemala, or wherever, um, and a drought hits and what do you, do? what do you, do you know what happens after that? Like in a household level, like what, what do families do at that point? Do they converse with each other? Do they like come up with a plan? Do they send somebody to like Tegucigalpa and Honduras? Or like what, what, from what you're understanding at that level, at that household level, when, when these things happen, it could be a drought, it could be a hurricane, it could be all of it, it, could be all these other factors. What, what, um. What have you seen that happens?
0: Yeah, I think that's another misnomer, right? That people think, oh, on the first instance of trouble, people people flee or pe- people leave. The first thing I want to say about that is, would you, would you, and have you? The answer to that is clearly no. You know, all of us have faced circumstances in our lives, and you know, your your fight or flight instincts are there. But very very often, we don't all pull up stakes and leave the only thing we've ever known, home. Right? Nobody wants to be forced to leave their home. And they do so when circumstances become untenable. When you've tried everything beyond and, and and everything you've thought of and it's and the situation has exhausted your means and is now beyond your means of coping. And for families, that generally means it's beyond your means to like sustain your the people you're you want to protect. What I've seen traditionally, Todd, in all around the world, in all the places I've worked with people who are forcibly displaced, is people will do whatever is within their means, both individually, as a family, and as a community, to try and weather the storm, if you will you know to use a climate metaphor here whether that's in a conflict scenario or in a climate scenario and usually those things can coexist and they always have by the way long before we were even talking about climate change people will continue to do everything they can to mitigate to adapt you know we're talking about climate adaptation people are doing it right now and they're doing it with very little support from the international community even though they've like pledged all this support right and it hasn't come forth it's when you see people migrate it's because they have exhausted those means when people have finally come to the us southern border it's because of like i said 6 to 8 years of consecutive droughts and hurricanes it's also because of other factors that might be ongoing like the violence you know and that violence by the way isn't devoid of also the climate factors happening and those like you know other industries that they're sort of coexisting with how do you adapt in a drought how do you adapt in a hurricane when the the plants you've grown historically and traditionally forever no longer will grow in a temperature and in a climate now that it's not actually going to grow in? The, the, the soil is scorched, right? The the seeds won't actually take root. You might need a bigger plot of land to adapt to those changing environments. But now how do you adopt, adapt to a bigger plot of land if you don't have own the land? Because... You actually, because you're a marginalized person, the land is being taken away from you, right? And it's being taken away from you by force or coercion or other like illicit means. So that's one barrier. It's so a second barrier. If you want to adapt to a stronger set of seeds or heat resistant or drought, you know, whatever, that costs money. So now again, you don't have this. So again, you might have done all these things. You've exhausted that. Now you have to move. Can you all afford to move? No. Can you all even have the right to move? No. Do you all have access to move? No. So you might have to make impossible choices, like splitting up the family, something that the international community says, you know, no, family reunification is everything we're supposed to keep families together. And yet we have systems in place that ensure that families have no choice, but to split up in order to survive. So what are we talking about here? Are we really ensuring the protection of people? Not really. That's why I say, that's why I keep bringing this back to where are our systemic failures and are we looking at persecution today as our, is this an individual issue or is this more of a, like a, a, a whole holistic systemic issue we need to be looking at? So that's what's happening. People will say, okay, maybe I have to send my children across because it's looking like the U.S. policy right now is a little bit more tolerant towards children mothers and children or maybe the prior administration you know and I'm just being hypothetical here but these are these are facts right um, maybe the prior administration was was allowing uh, you know male young males or and then the next administration may have said uh, no young males that's that's associated with the violence of, uh, of, of and mobility so we're actually detaining those people then along came another policy that said well actually unaccompanied minors maybe we have some empathy towards but you know Etc. Etc. We've all seen the incarnations of what's happening at the U.S. southern border. So you will see this type of decision making, you know, um, and and now you with with Title Forty Two in place, you know, where you can keep trying because you're not actually being given a decision. You're going to see people continuously try, and then you're pushed further and further and further into like trying different ways and different means. And the last thing I'll say about that, Todd, is those who are Traveling, they're doing so out of desperation, but they are also doing so with like whatever small means that they do have. Those who can't afford to travel are e- are even in worse situations. They're they're potentially trapped, right? Because more people are moving internally within their countries, and probably not getting any support or help, or not enough support or help, or they're trapped in their actual homes with even less support. And then those who are moving to the U.S. southern border um, or anywhere in, in life, you know, this this kind of looks like the same picture, they might be falling into like odious cycles of debt, right? They might be falling into what looks like modern-day slavery. They might be falling into smuggling situations. These are not like positive outcomes. But it's not, again, as simple as, oh, they're making a choice to do those things. It's Field from desperation and from the lack of options and choices and support and regular pathways that receiving countries are providing, knowing fully well that this is what this landscape looks like.
1: Can we pan out just a little bit and look at the globe? And one, I'm curious, like where across the globe and definitely we could continue talking about Central America. I'm assuming this is one of those places, right? But where are the different hotspots for impacts of climate that we're seeing now, where we're potentially going to see that as an influencer of displacement, and also projections into the future, right? The this is where, you, uh, as you were saying earlier, you might get some of those apocalyptic scenarios. Um, but what what are what are you seeing as far as you know, realistic projections for the futures as far as displacement. Understanding it's an X factor, right? We don't know exactly what's gonna happen and things can change, right? But what are what are you seeing from your vantage point?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let me let me comment on the hot spots first. I would say first of all, as far as like climate displacement goes, the first thing to say is there's nowhere in the world that isn't affected or at risk of being affected where you stand right now how many resources tools options you have is going to sort of determine how long you can sort of withstand how many resources do you have in your tool you know in your tool chest to sort of like wait this out or or mitigate the impacts so if you come from a wealthier country you know you might have like a longer set of like time to sort of like wait and see and and just options at your disposal so that is why I say, you know, it's a climate justice issue and you have to look at, you know, the underlying conditions. So that's why this also disproportionately affects the Global South, not just because the Global South has like such incredibly low emissions, but because the Global South, you know, the perverseness of this is while the Global North has developed at the expense of the Global South and now, and and the global south hasn't actually like benefited from that develop, development the global south is also like unduly now double taxed if you will right because now it's also paying for the effects of the climate crisis so take africa for example um, where emissions are 3% you know if if you're pushing it you know it's it's like it's less than 4 um, and that's for 54 countries you know by 2030 250 million people are expected to be, you know, dealing with water scarcity. But it's happening right now. Take Madagascar, you know, this is a country that the World Food Program has said is, you know, essentially the first climate change driven famine. And famine is a highly politicized term, so they may not act, like come right out and say that. But if you look at the the food insecurity levels with the classifications we have for that, you know, there, there are regions of southern Madagascar that are now classified at at famine level, um, where over um, 700,000 people, I think it is, are at that level, and it could be well over 1.5 soon. Um, Take Angola, you know, where there is such deep food insecurity that people have actually moved to different provinces within the country and moved across borders into Namibia. So this is all climate-driven. You know, and I don't think we're really even like beginning, we're not even talking about it adequately enough in the global north. So... Yeah, that's what that looks like right now. We don't even have to wait till 2030, 2050, which is what a lot of these projections look like. And then you you look at Asia, you know, just about every single part of Asia is at such high extreme risk and is gonna be at the highest levels of extreme risk. You know, I think it's 143 million people are expected expected to be uprooted over the next 30 years by rising seas, droughts, searing temperatures. Um, but, you know, basically by, by by climate disasters, and then Asia is is really supposed is expected to be the most at risk because one in three migrants today comes from Asia, which brings me you know to to the point too is that the data and the projections we have, which was the second part of your questions, we know that more people you know in the last um, internal displacement monitoring report, we know that more than 3 times as many people were displaced by climate disasters and extreme weather events than conflict or violence and since 2008 roughly you know we've been seeing this upward trajectory it's like well over 20 million people a year are displaced by by climate related events but remember we're primarily we know this about sudden onset climate events which are essentially disasters what about the slow onset events what about rising seas what about drought what about like the slow you know food insecurity it happens over a period of time because your crops are failing because of rising temperatures because of drought because of climate variability right those aren't disaster contexts those are slow onset climate events how do you unpack what the climate element is of someone's migration which is classified in in the narrative of how this is communicated as a choice as voluntary movements of people as people coming to your country and or moving internally in, in search of better opportunities which almost makes it seem like oh I just wanted a better job right like, like you have full agency or something nothing could be further from the truth right if you are Look at those stats I gave you in Asia, right? Like that's just looking at disasters. But if you're dealing with rising seas as well, and you're a rice farmer, and your pad, you know, your rice paddies are just not producing. Um, how how exactly are we measuring and gathering that levels of data? The term migrant has no legal definition. You know that in itself is a problem, right? Because then what me- by what measure are we determining who's moving for forcible reasons? We only really know that about disasters so it's really i i'll just say this about projections there are many they're based on modeling they're based on these data modeling and they're done by scientists who are very good at what they do some of sometimes they get it there are models out there that have kind of gotten it a bit wrong and then there are those who um you know have some conservative estimates and some it's all based on these like confidence intervals of if you do this and if you don't do this what what could it look like right um for me it's not so much about the projections as it is the alarming lack of protections because we're I don't think looking at the whole full picture because we're not looking also really understanding slow onset events and I think it comes down to you know how can we adequately protect people when we don't have a full grasp on what people are actually dealing with in fleeing?
1: Last year, at the end of last year, um, I helped uh, write a report um, right before the Glasgow UN summit, um, and I think the report came out in October. It was called the Global Climate Wall. But I, when I was when I was um, working on that report. You know it's funny like when you're working on reports and sometimes you just dis- discover something you would never thought about while you're working on the report well that happened to me with this with this particular report and of course the report the bigger picture of the report was we were looking at the countries with the highest emissions and comparing them to their border and immigration um like what they were spending on border and immigration versus what they're spending on climate action and of course are the results, of course, as can be imagined, like the, the countries like the United States and many European countries and Canada and Australia, we're um, spending much more on border and immigration enforcement than climate action. But when we're looking, so the, the, the thing that I hadn't thought about and I wanted to ask you about and ask you about other ideas that you might have is the we're, um, we started looking at how, those discrepancies between immigration enforcement and climate action. and then the idea of climate of, of migration as adaptation. And I think you already mentioned that here, right? that the, the idea of migration because going from places that you were just discussing where you can't really return to because it's desertification or the sea level rise, and you can't go back. And um, and one of the one of the points we came about was like why, instead of spending all this money on building up walls and surveillance systems and incarcerating people and killing people, really. Um, uh, why not? Like, there was an alternative of, of actually helping people move, <laughs> like, like investing, like, and in, in, you know, that, that people, if you are in a certain place and it's no longer going to be habitable, well, then you can, well will help you move to another place. Uh, that might be you know that sort of thing the idea of like refundling that money to something else and literally instead of blockading mobility facilitating mobility but i wanted to ask you about that but that was my big surprise you know i was like wow i'd never even thought of that and it's a super interesting idea but i want to hear your thoughts on it and your thoughts like really about those sorts of like what what can we do we're in this now right this is what's going on what what is it what 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 would you even what would you recommend what 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 would you be your ideal like what are you what are your thoughts
0: well you know i think it's it's such folly that so much money i mean i first of all i loved love that you know the the report you, you did with global climate wall because that was so important and so helpful to to document you know the hugely disproportionate amount of money that's being spent on, um, yeah, blocking people as you said, right? Like on on border security over climate adaptation, and then also mitigation, like lowering your emissions. When surely that's the biggest and most helpful contribution um, polluting countries can can make. High emitting countries, right? To put to to put it more nicely. Um, Or to put it nicely, polluting's (laughs) fine. Yeah, exactly. Let me be clear. Um, So, you know, so 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 let's let's take that. If if that's the reality, you know, let me give you another reality. Over 85 percent of the forcibly displaced in the world today, which pre-Ukraine was 84, 84 84.4 million people. That's well over one percent of the global population, Todd, you know. Um, so it was 85%. I think it's, it's, it's really basically about 86% of the world's forcibly displaced populations are housed in the global south. And by the way, they always have been, you know. So how do you, how do you justify the expenditure on securing your borders when even the data doesn't support the fact that no one's coming here? You know, so for all this hysteria of, oh my goodness, brown and black people are coming to my country, the data doesn't support that. If anything, the money should be going towards helping host countries bear that, I hate to use the word burden, because I think it's more about, why don't we have conversations about responsibility sharing? You know, for so long we've used the term burden sharing. I'm sorry, I don't think human beings are burdens. You know, because if we talked about why human beings are being forced to move, then I don't think we would have a conversation about burden. Burden wouldn't be in the conversation. But in the context of what I just said about how much money you're spending on blocking people, if you were to actually put the money where the data shows it needs to go, then you would be helping countries that are hosting people share that burden. And in that sense, burden would be the right, maybe a better use of the term there. Right? Because you're talking about neighboring countries who are hosting. I mean, you know, think about a situation in which Somalia, more people are displaced by climate today than violence. In 1991, the government of Siad Barre fell in Somalia. Somalia has been dealing with some level of violence or interclan violence, political upheaval you know, the rise of Al-Shabaab. I mean, you name it, Somalia has gone through it. I have I have lost track of how many interventions the international community has put together, the UN, the World Bank, everybody has. It'd be a fantastic report time for you to think, look at, like, how much money has been spent? And now, I think last year alone, the number statistics something like over 70% of the, of, of the displacement internally and across borders to places like, wait for it, Yemen, Ethiopia, Kenya, we all know how bad the situation in Yemen is. How bad does it have to be in Somalia where you're actually moving, being forced to move to Yemen because the situation is so bad in your country? I mean, think about that, you know? Are we talking about these things and are we we framing it in that way? And is Yemen saying, you know, I'm sorry, our situation's really too bad and we we can't help, you know? You, You don't see that type of response and framing kenya which has you know two of the largest camps and has been housing and hosting somalis since 1991 you know and has has op- said many many times how difficult that is for its for a, as a country you know um is continuing to receive somalis as well as south sudanese and ethiopians and eritore i mean you name it a lot of other African nations as well, you know. So the point being, you know, these, these other countries are, are really bearing the burden of both climate change and, and, and refugee hosting, and yet the countries that are responsible for both the climate crisis as well as, you know, wars and conflicts and, bur- and, and, and the fossil fuels as well that is underpinning a lot of these conflicts, you know, aren't necessarily sharing those, those responsibilities instead they're putting a lot of money into keeping people out which the data doesn't support you know take take what the uk just passed you know with with rwanda you know to offshore asylum and and everybody wants to have a conversation about you know is rwanda actually the place that people can find safe passage you know i would like to have a conversation also as in equal measure about should the UK, should we shouldn't we have a conversation about whether the united kingdom is it OK for them to like, you know, abrogate their responsibilities their international legal uh, responsibilities? You know, why isn't that just as much of a conversation? So this is what I, I, I'm very focused on these narratives and the unethical conversations we're having, because where is the responsibility of, of, of governments, you know, to people? Um, it's just an abysmal failure all, 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 all over the place uh, at that level
1: that brings me to a point you made um earlier and this this is gonna have to be the last question um we might have to do a part two of this <laughs> I think about sure it. <laughs> if you're up for it i'm only... <laughs> um uh but um you made a point and as you're talking about like why aren't we having why are we only having one conversation when we're not having another conversation and um but an earlier point you made was that uh this isn't being discussed like it should like in the in the global north, right? It's just not. We're not it's if it's not, you know, my feelings are, if it's not being discussed, then how are we going to it's not even in the discourse. Or what are your thoughts on that? How does how does how do these issues that are so uber important um how do we begin to discuss them like in the United States um in in such a way where you know, why aren't why isn't why aren't certain conversations happening like the responsibility like the responsibility conversation? What do you what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think that that's a great question, and I think that that is exactly where where it needs to be. I think I think the reason that that's not happening is is because we don't have a culture that's willing to have a conversation that's beyond the sound bites um and, and i don't just mean a culture meaning putting it, put it on people i mean it's, it's an entire system right like our, our our corporate media system right like i every conversation i have with a journalist for example they might ask me for 20 30 minutes and not one pod since i found a climate refugees hasn't said i'm so, so so sorry amali can i have a bit more time and i have what little do they know that i've scheduled on my end another 30 minutes because i fully well know how in-depth the conversation's going to get. Because, well, I for one also am not, I, I'm just not going to partake in like, I can't give you a soundbite because there aren't any, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm sorry that I'm I- am glad,
1: I'm happy for <laughs> I'm so glad that you that's, that's your philosophy. It Thank you. It is,
0: it is my philosophy. And you know, and I just think to myself, effort without any contribution is meaningless, right? And so when I'm gone, I would love for us to have elevated the conversation. If that's one contribution I can have made, then okay, so be it. The next generation can, can hopefully have, some, have a better conversation. Because if, unless we're talking about things that say, why aren't we having conversations that hold our governments to a higher ideal? Why aren't we having a conversation then, which by the way sounded an awful lot like democracy to me, you know, um, why aren't we then also having conversations that say, wait a minute, does, a, does racism have a lot to do with this? You know, because newsflash, it does. Um, you know, I'm sorry, then we there are no solutions. I can I can tell you that countries pledged $100 billion a year have in 2009. Have they met that pledge? No. Why aren't they meeting that pledge? Is it just about economics? Oh, hell no. Right. It's about all of these things. And unless we're willing to have these conversations, Todd, then it'll be 2029 before we're maybe getting close to figuring out. And by then, $100 billion, by the way, $100 billion, it's not even enough. We already have numbers that tell us how much money is needed for climate adaptation. And and I haven't even gotten to, and if you want to do a part two, we'll get there. My personal feeling on this is, we're talking so much about, you know, people migrating when the conversation I think we need to be having is the right to not migrate in equal measure and how much we are not doing anything to ensure that right. We do not allow people the choice anymore. So it's basically, do you want to be trapped or do you want to go into some really odious, horrible situation where because you have no other choice but to migrate? That's, that's what it's looking like more and more and more.
1: Thank you so much, Amali. It's really a pleasure and honor to talk to you as always. And that is a good place to leave it, right? With that question, you know, the the right to not have to migrate. And um, thank you for having the conversation with us today.
0: Oh, it's absolutely an honor, Todd.
1: Thank you, Amali. Well, we'll I'll be in touch for sure.
0: Okay. All right. Thanks, Todd.
1: Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Maitor and Alara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.